Today's uh, scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 28, verses 1 through 14. That's Exodus 28, 1 through 14. Would you all rise for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his, scenes with, and his sons with him. From among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they shall make the effort of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and of fine twined linen. You shall, you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on the names of the sons of Israel, six of the names on one stone and the names of the remaining, remaining six on the other stone, in the other of their birth, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall, you, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones in the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord of these two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. This is the word of God. Would you join me as we continue to worship, as we pray again? Lord God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds. That as your scriptures were read and now as your word is proclaimed, that we may be led to your truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So the picture that you see is a picture of our home for 11 days while we were in the Philippines. Um, this is where Pastor Rick and Gigi and their family live, and they graciously opened up their home so that uh, we may uh, stay there during those uh, 11 days. Now, I was told that this was the address of uh, their home. And this is the address that I filled out when we were coming out of the plane. But I soon realized that this is not an address of a home, because if you Google it, it's actually an entire neighborhood. And um, you can't really even mail anything to this address, because obviously it's not a home. Um, 
This is where we worshiped. Second floor is where Olive Grove, uh, the church that we uh, worshiped together for uh, two Sundays and during uh, other meetings. And it was amazing because they had AC. It was beautiful. And um, I was also trying to decipher the address of the location. And this was one address I found. But if you Google this, um, it really doesn't show up in any meaningful way. And this was, okay, something happened to the slides. There was another address that, um, okay, this one, that I found, and because there's a building um, connected to the, uh, the church, Kina building, and this actually uh, worked, and it led us to this, particular point. And if you actually um, figure out the distance between where we were staying and where we were going for church, um, it was like less than five miles, really close. Now, I was one of the three newbies, and there were eight others, veterans, yet despite um, many of us having gone there, uh, most of us had no idea how to actually get there. Once we stepped out, it's like, what do we say? Especially in the first half. We didn't know the native language and we didn't know how much to pay. So um, we really, really depended on one person and that was Hesu. If it wasn't for her, um, people like me, you know, might not have returned. Um, <laughs> we, um, she would, basically, you know, take us to certain places and, you know, call a motorcycle, give the instructions to the motorcyclist, tell, us, tell them where to drop us off, and then send us away, um, and waited, and she would be the last one to leave. She would, you know, grab a jeepney, or sometimes they'll call them jeep. It's more like a little van that will scrunch in together, you know, stop one and ask if it's going to a particular destination that we're trying to head to. And if it's not, then she'll send them away and we'll do it again and again until we'll find the right one. Once we get on, we'll find out the fare and ask and then pay the fare and really be an amazing guy that we needed, especially in the first half. I think some of us figured out how to get to places, thank God, that they're not all like me. Um, and we were just... Um, really able to focus on what we had to do because we had a guide. Um, if you don't know how to get home, having a guide um, makes all the difference. Um, now, I guess the difference is for most of us, um, especially the veterans, um, with time, they were able to, even without, has to figure out a way to get around more. Um, but as last week, Pastor Eugene preached this powerful, insightful sermon on the book of Exodus from chapter 25 to 27 about the tabernacle and how it echoes of the Garden of Eden, but ultimately how it really um, leads us way home to God. And today we come to the priests who served as the guides for this tabernacle, guide showing us the way home to God. Tabernacle if you haven't gotten it by now, it, it was no self-service. 
Um, you couldn't volunteer for it, but God had to appoint you and call you. And specifically, Aaron and his sons, the Levites, were chosen. They didn't volunteer for it, but God set them apart and used them. So we're going to talk about the sacred garments today. It's kind of like a holy divine uniform that if you put them on, and if you walk around in the tabernacle, people will know that you belong. There was dignity and honor, and people, when they saw the priests, the high priests, especially with this particular uh, priestly garments, they knew that the authority of God was on him. So, Scripture talks, starts with the ephod because although in terms of the ordering of what you might put on, you wouldn't start with this, but theologically, this is the most important part. So book of Exodus, we hear um, God giving instructions to Moses and how to um, put on uh, for Aaron and eventually other priests an ephod, which was kind of like a vest. And um, there you go. So you have the vest with these special filigree on top of each shoulders, like a strap. And um, on each one of these precious jewels, six names, each of the six names of the 12, six here, six there, sons or the tribes of Israel were written on them. So whenever the high priest went into the high uh, holy place, he bore on his shoulder and, and as a memorial before the Lord. Um, Israelites, as they were moving, um, the tabernacle was the central place of worship. Moses and, the, and Moses, Aaron and the priests were right in front of the entrance, and you have these uh, Mirrorites, uh, Gashon and Kohathites. These are actually the tribe of Levites who surrounded the tabernacle. And to each north, south, east, west, three of the tribes um, were surrounding and um, in a kind of like, it's like a big um, gathering that we would typically see at a sports event. But you have 12 tribes, but actually this is actually 11 tribes because Ephraim and Manasseh are the kids, children of Joseph, right? So you have really um, minus, when you're talking about the, 12 names, they really encompass the 11 sons because the 12 Levites are set apart. But the 12 names, you have the high priest entering, bearing, remembering each tribe as he comes before the Lord. I can't help but think of the image of a shepherd carrying a sheep, um, a hint of that as, as a priest as a, um, carries the shoulder on his shoulder, each of the names of the Israelites tribes. So after the ephod, you have the, the breast um, plate and you also see what's involved in making the breastplate. You have gold as well as each of the linen from um, involved in making this, and 
if we had these two filigree, which had six names, each names of the tribes of Israel, now you, in the middle you had this um, four by three precious stones um, that are set on the heart of the high priest, and on each precious stone, the name of the tribe of Israel was once again written so that the, the high priest, as he entered again the holy places, as he did the ministry at the tabernacle, the names of the tribes were on his heart. He was coming before, again, regular remembrance before the Lord. And these gems were available. They were found in the Garden of Eden. And when you fast forward from Genesis all the way to Revelation, at the end of the book, when um, God talks about the foundation of the heavenly city, these 12 same stones are repeated. And you can't help but realize that what God was doing in the Israelites was all really a part of what God was planning for the world. Going before into God's presence was a dangerous, dangerous thing. And um, it was really a bad matter of life and death because when you come into the holy presence of God, if you did the right way, you would stay alive. But if you did it the wrong way, ignoring any of these elements that God was instructing, then you would lose your life. So it would be underneath the ephod, um, you would have this robe, and this would be a long robe, and on the, uh, at the hem, you would have both these uh, pomegranates and golden bells. Pastor Eugene talked about pomegranates um, covering the uh, the tabernacle, again, echoing of Garden of Eden. Once again, in a way, the high priest was a miniature version of the tabernacle. And at the bottom of the hem were these golden bells um, so that as the high priest walked around entering the holy place, it would serve as a, um, a signal. Kind of like if you enter a king back in those days, not only would you put on the best clothes you have, you would basically announce your entrance. You would dare not enter the king's presence without letting the king know that you're coming in. You'd never barge in. In a similar way, when a high priest wore those bells, it was to remind the people that only through this kind of a mediation can someone enter into God's presence, but it's really showing reverence before God. And if you didn't have the bells, you'd be struck dead too. These bells were audible reminder that sinners really cannot come before God unless you go through a mediator like the priest, high priest. And on top of that, you have a turban and you have the crown uh, with an engraving, holy to the Lord. Again, being set apart, the set apart. You have a, um, and then you have the pants, or in, I think, our Bible version, you have the undergarment, underwear. Uh, by the way, uh, many of the priests back in ancient times did not have undergarment. Why? Because a lot of them were related to fertility gods and sex and sexuality was used in their worship. God would have none of that. So if you were to actually 
um, put on all these. You would obviously put the pants first, your undergarment, and then you would put the tunic, and then on top you would have the belt. Um, you would have the robe on top of that with the, uh, at the hem with the pomegranates as well as the golden belt, and on top you have the ephah, which is kind of the central piece that we started with. And then on top of the uh, ephod, you have the, um, the breastplate. Uh, I didn't really talk too much about the uh, thumen and omen, um, but um, that's really, again, the order that you would put on. And then after putting the um, breast piece, you have the turban and the crown, and you would look the part. Now, this is not the most uh, graphically kind of um, perhaps appetizing to some of the fashion people. It's like, this doesn't look bad. Yes, it's not meant to do all that. But when a high priest put on the full priestly garment, you, people would know that he belonged there. And it was really a miniature version of um, the tabernacle, in a sense. Um, now, after... Uh, the high priest would have donned on his priestly garment, eventually would be anointed with oil, consecrated as priest, and to do so, have to go through a sacrificial system of a bull and two rams, because sin had to pass from the, the priest to the animal, and the animal had to die. So before a priest could represent the people, his own sins had to be dealt with. And there's a beautiful picture at the end. The priest is eating some of the sacrifice as, he's, as a sign of uh, being accepted in God's presence. Uh, this would take about seven days. Seven days of atonement uh, for the altar and for the high priest. Um, and eventually the holy place, the inner tabernacle, and the altar for burnt offering will be anointed. And whatever it, touch, it touches will become holy. Um, and only after... The high priest is consecrated. Can he be able to regularly offer the sacrifices twice a day of one year unblemished lamb? Um, so during these seven days, three types of sacrifices were made. I briefly mentioned you have a bull, which was a sin offering. Um, this was sacrificed in the courtyard outside the tabernacle and while the blood was sprinkled on the horns of the altar, um, so if I were to go back, um, the altar would be here, and the horns would be at the corner, uh, but um, the unclean inner parts were thrown outside the camp and burnt outside. The rest was placed at the altar and was offered as an atoning sacrifice. And obviously, before the bull was killed, the, the, uh, the high priest, as well as, um, um, was, was to lay his hand on the bull, imputing his sin from the priest to the bull. And um, if you pay attention to what happens, what's burned inside and outside, you can't help but realize and see the details that you see when Jesus is sacrificed when he is crucified, it's not in the city, it's outside, because he was offering himself as a 
sacrifice for sin. After the bull is sacrificed, you have a ram that is offered as a burnt offering. Again, the priest would come, lay their hands. Now, the blood is smeared on the altar. Before it was the horns of the altar, now smeared all over the altar and the sides of the altar. Um, and the ram was just totally inflamed. It was just burnt up as a total dedication to God. And then finally, when the th- second ram, now as a blood sacrifice, um, it's to sanctify the priests. And now it's kind of messy, but the blood of the ram is sprinkled over the bodies of the high, high priest as well as his garments. So by the time you have the bull, the first ram, and the second ram, it's blood everywhere. You have blood on the altar, the horns, the sides, the right toe of the, the high priest, the right earlobe, um, his garments all covered with blood. Now he's ready to serve and go on behalf of the people, the 12 tribes that he's bearing on his shoulders, the the names of 12 tribes that's on his heart. Now he's able to be their mediator and bring the sacrifices on their behalf. The focus of the chapter Chapters that we just skimmed through in 27, 28, 29 especially reminds us that we need a guide. Um, we need a priest who can come before God on our behalf. We can't do it. It's not like a guide where, like, for example, you know, half of our people eventually halfway through our mission was able to figure out and get around. High priest as a guide is not something that we can figure out if we have enough time. It's not that that kind of a guide. It's kind of like more closer to all of us are like me with horrible sense of directions. Even with more time, I won't be able to figure out how to get around. And it's not a matter of time you totally depend on the guide who will bring you home because you can't do it like I can't do it. By the end of chapter 29, we have this beautiful picture where God is eating with his people. God is speaking with his people. God is meeting with his people and God is dwelling with his people. And if you think about it, we do something on a regular basis that echoes this. And Pastor Eugene has been teaching and reminding us about communion. Eating with God isn't something you do lightly. When we eat together with God, it signifies that God has accepted us into his presence because someone has brought us Every time we take communion, God eats with us as a sign that we're accepted into God's presence. And God speaks to us as the word was read today and as is regularly preached. God meets with us as we pray and gather together Saturday, 
praying on behalf of the church, and God dwells with us in His Holy Spirit. And that's why Lord's Supper isn't to be taken lightly. So who should come to the table? Those who have been led home by the true guide. That's Pastor Rick on the left. Um, this is one of the uh, teaching moments. Um, I think when there was some noise being blasted, he just kind of gathered all. We had um, um, G127 kids, and we had Good Shepherd girls here too. Um, this is a beautiful scene when he just kind of refocused everybody about what they're about when there was distraction going on with music that was really ungodly. Pastor Rick and Gigi have been serving as missionary for the past 10 years around, and CGS has had the privilege of going to the Philippines for the past three years, and I was just able to see a glimpse of Jesus in those 11 days and just amazed. Um, because to... Um, these girls in the neighborhood, there's some like 30 girls that Pastor Rick uh, personally picks out to join the homeschool where his daughters learn with these girls, where they're taught about the, the truth of the word and equipped. And as Esther shared, they're growing stronger. They're far more confident than other kids who go to public school um, because I think they, they understand who Jesus is and whose they are. And I see Pastor Rick, Gigi, going out. The fact that they live in this neighborhood, they, they go as a guide, going to the people. The names on the shoulders, the names on his heart, these are those girls that he goes to the Lord for. And every single one of us who've been there, we could see it palpably. We could see it, sense it, whenever the conversation that he would have with any one of us because they were always intentional and we knew that he was always carrying them on his shoulder. And you couldn't help but see a glimpse of Jesus, what it looked like to go before the Lord with the burden on your shoulders and the names in the heart, the kind of true shepherd that we all long to see. And these are the good shepherd girls. And um, that's Pastor Ephraim right there. Um, his wife, Noeli, um, his wife works with the good shepherd girls. He, he loves basketball. I've never seen anyone, not, not just him, but just people in the Philippines, they love basketball. Like I would see the same people play basketball like 8 o'clock in the morning, and when we come back, I'll see the same people playing again still. I wonder, have they been playing for 12 hours outside? Some of them do. Um, Pastor Ephraim loves basketball, but even more, he loves the young guys of um, this area. Um, he, uh, Parok 7, these guys, they love basketball. He goes out, he plays with them. He listens to their stories. And kids open up, and he invites them to the church. Pastor Rick does the same. The, the girls that we see at the homeschool, we see a bunch of them at church. Because at the end, we know, they know 
where the home is ultimately. And Pastor Rick, Pastor Ephraim, um, for me, just really um, shows me a glimpse of the kind of guy that we are called to be. One of the activities we did was bridge building, and they really do serve as a small bridge, pointing again and again to the true bridge, a true guy who is Jesus himself. And this is just a picture of, you know, at the end of the tournament, like Peter, Song, um, Joe, they played hard. Um, after the whole day was done, like, you know, I had a great excuse. I can't play. I'll, you know, so I'll just uh, support them <laughs> the best way I can by not playing. Um, but um, they were great. But what's even greater is the glimpse of Pastor Ephraim's heart because it is really a slice of Jesus' heart because the names um, that he bears on his shoulder and his heart as we see him having conversation with those boys, because many of those boys come to church and they are growing as a follower because of him, because he cares, he goes to the Lord. But here's the reality, though. Despite looking the part, looking magnificent with this priestly garment, the high priest, as we just went through, you know, he, he had to lay his hand and impute his sin on the animal, and the animal had to die. He was a sinner, and the garment couldn't hide the fact that he was a sinner. It was just simply masked with great attire, but that was it. To enter the glorious presence of God required perfect holiness, and none of the Israelites' high priests really lived up to that standard. Even as this message, the very message and instruction is given from God to you know, Moses up in Mount Sinai, you know what, you know, you fast for a couple of chapters, chapter 32, some of us studied this already, you know what Aaron does while they're waiting for 40 days because Moses still hasn't come back after the first time? He leads the people in building this golden calf. As God is instructing Moses how to worship, Aaron is doing this crazy thing with this golden calf, yet God chose him. And not only that, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, eventually they sin by offering unholy fire on God's altar. And you know what happens, they die. Throughout the scriptures, especially when you read the book of prophets, you come to realize the corruption of the priest playing a significant part in the sending of Israel into exile what eventually led to destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the corruption of the priest played a significant part. Now, theologians talk about three offices of the Old Testament. You have the king, you have the priest, you have the prophet. A prophet was the man who spoke God's word. Priest was the man who went into God's presence for the people to make atonement for sin, to bring people to God. King was a man who ruled with God's authority. When all these three offices were upheld, the nation really did flourish. When they had faithful prophets, when they had holy priests, when they had godly kings, they flourished. But you know what? It didn't happen often. Usually you had a faithful prophet dealing with an ungodly king. You had an authority of godly king being undermined by an immoral priest. And the results were always disastrous. 
And that's why at the end, when it was just the right time, God finally sent his son to do the work of all three offices, Jesus Christ as a faithful prophet, as a holy priest, as a godly king. When you study the book of Exodus and you read books like the book of Hebrews, it's amazing. Things make so much sense. You begin to appreciate and scripture becomes live in a different way, full away. And here's what the author of Hebrews does to summarize Exodus 29. It says that Moses sprinkled with with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Jesus Christ has come as our high priest. But unlike any high priest before, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Whatever the high priest did for the Israel in the holy place, Jesus has done for us in heaven itself. In the Old Testament, as we just went through, the high priest had to make himself presentable, put on the priestly garments, beautiful, ornate garments. He had to offer sacrifices, had to wash up. But Jesus, the priest, was without sin. He was holiness incarnate. Holiness wasn't something he put on, like today I will put this jacket on. No. Holiness was who he is, was, and will be. And he came to perform the ultimate great work of his priesthood to finish what all this system couldn't fulfill. And at the end, he was rejected. He was nailed outside the holy city because he was dealing with your sin and mine. He didn't need any outward splendor because he had a splendor of his own. He bore our sins on his shoulder, our guilt. And you know what? Jesus continues to carry our burdens close to his heart as he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. You know, we recite the Apostles' Creed every other month, and we talk about reciting how he ascended into the seat of God the Father and sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You know what he's doing? He is in the presence of God, interceding on our behalf. He has your name and my name on his heart, on his shoulder, to those who have placed our trust and faith in him. Our names are on his heart. As long as he is in heaven, he will continue to intercede. You and I were created by God to have communion with him. Yet we know, as scripture clearly teaches us, that sin and our rebellion separate us from God. Yet God's this divine plan of salvation, as we saw in the book of Exodus, led all the way to be fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus the guy who brings us to the Father through himself. And it's only through his blood that he shed that he can enter heaven itself and sit the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
Maybe you have doubts at times. Maybe you feel the weight of your sin at different seasons of life. What is a Christ follower to do? We are to look up to heaven and see our high priest there with our name written on his heart and on his shoulders. Let me close with Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It teaches, since then we have a great high priest who passes, who passed through the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed by just your plan that you have set in motion before the world was created. But clearly in the book of Exodus, as we've been just amazed by the orchestration of all that you have set up and what your son Jesus Christ did finished on the cross outside to pay our debt for sin to bring us to you, O Father. God, may we be a church. May we continue to grow as a church that seeks holiness more than comfort. May we grow as a church that is in awe of your holiness and amazed by your radical grace that you have shown through your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, whenever we doubt our salvation, whenever we feel the weight of our sin, not just every Sunday when we come and confess, may we look to you in heaven and see our high priest there, knowing, trusting our names on your heart, on your shoulders, and draw confidently to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Lord, be glorified. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name.